0: We're continuing and finishing our our series. Over the last month, we have tried to focus on what's most important for us, and we've asked the question, what are we about? Why do we do what we do? And we've used our our vision to kind of guide our time. So uh, our vision is to know God, experience community, and multiply. You see that on your your handout. Um, And and to know God, we want each of us as individuals and as a community to be in a growing relationship with God. Um, We don't want, a lot of times, the the conception of Christianity is that when you become a Christian, you've crossed the finish line and now you just coast, right? Um, the Becoming a believer and deciding to follow Jesus is actually just crossing the starting line. It's beginning the race of faith. And so we want to be growing in a relationship with God. Um, Experiencing community, when, when we do take that step of faith and we begin following Jesus, we want to be in a community that loves us and cares for us and knows us and challenges us. That's what we want to be as a body of Christ. We're not just all individual believers that come together and worship individually and then leave. We are the body of Christ. We're meant to do this together. Um, The the life of faith is not a solo race. Uh, And and when we try to make it one, that's when we become discouraged or let down or we fail. Um, We've got to do this as a community. And then finally, last week we talked about multiply and about how we're called to extend grace, right? We want to be grace extenders. So as we receive grace, we extend it to other people. We want to make disciples. We want to see his kingdom grow. It's not about our kingdom and what we can produce here. Uh, It's about his kingdom. Um, And one of the things that I've become convinced of as I've kind of watched the the church movements over the last 20, 30 years, um, it seems that as churches grow bigger. So you you picture like when I was growing up, a 200 to 300 person church would be a pretty big church. Um, Nowadays, you know, uh, the big churches are 5, 10, 15,000 people. But as as churches grow bigger, the the interesting thing about if you take community demographics, um, there's not more people in that community following Jesus the, the percentages are almost the same and oftentimes lower. Uh, and so what what ends up happening is what Christians are doing are they they're concentrating themselves in fewer churches. So there, there's there's fewer churches actually happening, um, but we're just concentrating in smaller or smaller amount of churches in bigger groups. Um, but there's not a disciple making movement. And, and that's what we want to that's what we want to be. We don't want to be someone that just gathers a bunch of people together and, and we're not making a difference out in our community. Um, And so what I wanted to do today as we kind of wrap this up and and we're going to be moving on, eventually we're going to be, uh, we're actually going to be looking, walking through the book of Romans. So get ready. That's going to be fun. Um, But I want to walk through a passage where all three of these elements are happening. And and we've walked through, I think we looked at it in Matthew uh, probably a few months ago, but I wanted to look at um, this story in Luke because all three of these elements, knowing God, experiencing community and multiplying are in here. So this is Luke chapter 5 verses 27 through 32. So if you have Uh, Your Bible's with you. You can turn to Luke 5, 27 through 32. So here's what it says. After this, he went out and he saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And leaving everything, he rose and followed him. And Levi made him a great feast in his house. And there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at table with with them. And the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples, saying, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Okay, there's, there's a lot going on here, and this is not going to be rocket science today. Like, this is going to be very basic, um, but it's, it's one of those things that uh, are, are so basic sometimes we overlook. And so I just want you to see just how the gospel begins to spread in a very basic way. Essentially, in this passage, we have two scenes. Uh, we have the first scene where Jesus calls Matthew, and then we have the second scene uh, at, at Matthew's house. And all three elements of knowing God, experiencing community, and multiplying are in both scenes. So let's just take a look at both scenes. Verses 27 and 28 is the first scene, and it's the calling of the disciple Levi. Uh, you would know him as Matthew. He's the one who wrote the book of Matthew. Uh, some of you might wonder, like, well, why is he called two different names? Um, there's there's a lot of people who have a lot of possible answers, um, but I'll give you two, and, and you, can, you can debate which one you think is right. Some speculate that Matthew is his Greek name and that Levi is his Hebrew name. So, so Levi's doing the Hebrew route. I'm doing the Greek route. I don't know. Um, others say that Matthew would be his Christian name. And some have speculated that Jesus, and this is not in the Gospels, so don't take this as gospel truth. Some think that Jesus might have even given him the name Matthew because it means gift of God. Um, regardless, we're confident that this person, Levi, in this passage is the disciple Matthew. Um, and it doesn't say if Jesus' disciples were with him, but that's, that's what disciples do, right? Like when you call disciples as a rabbi back in the first century, your disciples follow you around. That's, that's essentially your job. Uh, and so he's beginning to do miracles. He's drawing a crowd. And so as Jesus comes upon this tax collector, Levi, he most likely has his disciples and a crowd with him. Now, I want you to think about this scene. And for, for those of you who don't understand first century Judaism and tax collecting and, and, and all of that, I'll try to give you a, a brief overview so you have an idea. But I want you to think about this scene as Jesus sees a tax collector sitting at a tax booth. This is a moment filled with tension. There's no way to misunderstand the situation or mistake who Matthew is. Everyone knows who Matthew is. It's just front and center, right smack in front of everybody. He's the enemy. Tax collectors were hated by their own people. They were looked down upon by the Romans. They were pretty much on their own. There there was no one for them to congregate with. Um, They would collect taxes for Rome. So um, Rome basically overtook Israel. They were were the conquerors of the land. And so Rome would tax the, the citizens there. Uh, And it was actually quite a good scheme. Uh, It encouraged corruption. So as long as the tax collectors gave Rome the amount that Rome wanted, they were allowed to charge over and above and take what they wanted after. And so it encouraged corruption. So people like Matthew would charge someone, like, let's say Ellie came into my city, and and I wanted to charge Ellie some money. And Rome said, I want want you to charge Ellie $10. They didn't have dollars back then. Whatever. $10. And so Ellie was like, okay, I can pay $10, but I'm the tax collector. I'm going to say, Ellie you know what, I'm going to give you a special deal. You can pay me $50. And she would just have to go, okay, you know, I want to get in. That's all. That's my only choice. And so they would pocket the change. They were encouraged to take advantage of the people um, and keep the extra. So tax collectors, they could make serious money. Um, and it was the perfect job for someone that might be a little unethical. And because they were cheating their own people, they were dependent upon Rome. Uh, they would be super rich, but they would be social outcasts. And so there was a trade-off. You could lose your reputation. You could cheat the people that uh, you grew up with. Um, But you'd have lasting financial security in the midst of a very uncertain situation. And so some people like Matthew chose this route. Uh, And that's why tax collectors would not be seen at the synagogue. You wouldn't go to the synagogue and go, hey, there's Levi. He's not going to be there. You wouldn't see him at the temple. Um, They're primarily only friends with the group that the Bible labels, quote-unquote, sinners. So picture Jesus, the Messiah, the King of Kings, the one who's doing miracles, and he's calling you to walk alongside your enemy. Picture Jesus calling you to walk alongside someone who's betrayed you. Picture Jesus calling a public public figure that you despise. That's the way the disciples are having to figure things out right now. That's what's happening to the disciples here. Think about the context in Luke 5, what's happened right before this. If you have your Bibles open, you can just look at the headings right before Jesus calls Matthew. He calls the first disciples, so he calls, he calls Simon Peter and his brother Andrew. He calls uh, James and John. Uh, and then he goes and he heals a leper. That's pretty exciting, right? Then he goes and he heals a paralytic. So you've got all this momentum building up. If you're a disciple, you're thinking, this is great. You know, like, I've always been waiting for the Messiah. The Messiah, he's coming, he, he's called me, and now he's healed a leper, he's healed a paralytic. We're building momentum. People are going to love us. And then this happens. It, it's like speeding down the highway and hitting the brakes. Like, you're going to get whiplash. Um, there had to be someone thinking, as, as you're one of the disciples, are we really going to invite him. Is he really going to be a part of our movement? Is this really happening? What will people say? But see, Jesus doesn't often act exactly how we'd expect, and Jesus doesn't often act how we want him to act. He invites Levi to know God. Literally, it's an invitation to know Jesus, to follow him, to sit at the feet of Jesus, as David preached on three weeks ago, to learn from him. He invites Levi into a community that Levi had not had, Jesus welcomes him into the community of faith. He says, come be a part of my family. No one may accept you now. The Romans, they look down upon you. The Jews, they cast you out. But you are mine. He's making a disciple, the multiply part. He's literally gained a follower, just not the one that anyone wanted, just not the one that anyone expected. And so what does Levi do when Jesus calls him? He says "It says that he, leaving everything, he rose and followed him, He left everything. The, the word literally means forsaking it. He couldn't have been in the middle of his job just going about taxing people. Jesus comes up and says, "Follow me, and he just picks up his things and he goes. This is a complete break from his old life. And so that's the first scene. You see Jesus calling Matthew. The second scene is in verses 29 through 32. There's a change of scenery. First, we're at Matthew's tax booth, now we're in Matthew's house. And Jesus had given an invitation and now Levi gets to do the same. Levi gives an invitation to some other people. And notice in the invitation, where, where are we at this point? We're in his house. We're at his table. Notice that we're not at a religious location. When Jesus calls Matthew to follow him, the first place they go is not the synagogue. The first place they go is not the temple. The first thing they do is they don't have a Bible study. Much of the disciple-making in Scripture happens outside of what we would consider religious buildings. Much of the disciple-making in Scripture happens outside of what we would consider religious services. It happens at the table. It happens in homes. It begins with everyday interactions. And and notice that it says there was a large company. Imagine Jesus, you know, he's calling this tax collector. And if you're Peter or if you're Andrew or if you're James and you're John, you're good Jewish men and you don't like the tax collector. And all of a sudden, Jesus not only invites him, but you're going to his house and he's not just inviting one or two friends, he's inviting a very large company of people. This is a party. He wants everyone to meet this Jesus, and he invites the only people that he knows to invite. No one else is going to come, but he knows the people who will come, the only ones who would associate with them: other tax collectors, other sinners. And so you have Jesus and his disciples eating a dinner with the lowest rung of first century Jewish society. Like literally the people that you would never expect the Messiah to go and sit with and eat with and talk with and laugh with and have a good conversation with, and he's there. It had to have been a crazy sight, and that's why the Pharisees and the scribes, they get all upset. You see them grumbling, and they question the disciples. Why do you eat with tax collectors and sinners? It's a good reminder, guys, that if you're walking with Jesus, you can't be too concerned about appearances. You really can't. Uh, we want people to wonder about our church. We want people, when they come to our church or they come to one of our gatherings, for there to be people there that they might consider unsavory. <laughs> we want, we when, we, when we gather together, for there to be people, be people there, that other people might go, why are they here? How would you allow them to come and be a part of what you're doing? Don't you know who they are? Don't you know what they do or what they've done? And we'd say, yes. And God is working in them just as he's working in us. They're not perfect. We're not perfect. We're sitting at Jesus's feet and we're watching him transform us. We're watching him transform them. And so Jesus tells them, he says, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. He says, I've come not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Jesus came for those who need a savior. If you're sick, but you pretend like you aren't, I'm definitely one who doesn't like going to the doctor. And there's been times when Um, I'm a little bit delayed on going to the doctor. And so when I'm delayed in going to the doctor, what happens? I don't get better. (laughs) Like, if you're sick and you need a doctor, you got to go or they can't help you. You have to recognize your condition. And and we, as as believers in Jesus, as followers of him, we're those who have recognized our condition. We've seen the difference that Jesus makes. And all we're doing is we're inviting others to see it as well. And so we have Matthew inviting other people to have an opportunity to know God. Jesus, he calls them to repentance. Notice that he's not excusing their sin. It's not, it's not a free ticket to staying in your former life, but he's extending grace to those who need it, just like we need it. Imagine how many people have extended grace to these people before in their life. Probably not many. But Jesus extends them grace, and Matthew helps get them to him. I would also say that the disciples knew God better after this moment, too. If you were one of the disciples, and you're sitting alongside Jesus and all these tax collectors and sinners, and you're wondering, okay, this is not exactly how I expected the Messiah to do things, and then he's answering these Pharisees and these scribes by saying this is exactly what I'm here for, they're having to kind of reorient their worldview. They had to open themselves up to a new paradigm for ministry. He had to expand their eyesight to include people that they never would have thought to include. So we also see experienced community in this passage, and what a beautiful, odd, controversial, and probably a little contentious community Can you imagine what those people would have talked about at that first dinner? You've got fishermen raised on the Jewish law, and then you've got tax collectors, and then you've got sinners, which, you know, is a whole cast of different people. Like, what did they talk about when they first gathered together? Was there, you know, did they all sit at one end of the table while, you know, someone else sat over here? Like, how did they begin to intermingle? Imagine how awkward that would have been that first time. And as they begin to learn to love each other despite their differences, because they're united in Jesus. But they began to experience a community that neither of them had experienced before, because before their community only extended to people who were just like them. And what a terrible, you know, uneventful community that is. But now community is broadened to the people that we're not like. Sometimes we we tend to separate our two worlds as Christians. We we have our Christian community and we have our non-Christian community. We, we, we hang out with our Christian friends on Sunday or small group time or, you know, we'll have a dinner with our Christian friends and then we'll go have a dinner with our non-Christian friends. And what I would encourage you to do is the same thing that Matthew has done and Jesus has done here is mix it up. Bring your Christian friends and your non-Christian friends together. Don't keep your two worlds completely separate. Invite them out for ice cream and bring them all together. Have a cookout. Bring them all together. Bring them into your home. Have a game night. Do something, but bring them together. We don't have to keep those two worlds separate, and I think the biblical witness is that it's better than when we don't. And again, the greatest witness to Jesus is done out there. Our greatest witness is not done in here. Our greatest witness is done out there, where Matthew took the tax collectors and sinners to his house, to his table. Yes, we want to bring people in here, and it would be great, you know, if we could fill every pew in here and everyone was singing, it would be a great time. But our number one priority is not necessarily to fill these pews. Our number one priority is to bring people to Jesus, and it's best done by going to them and not trying to hope that they come here one day. So they multiply, literally what Matthew has done. Just like we talked about last week, where we talked about grace extending to more and more people so that thanksgiving could go up to the glory of God. Matthew has received grace from Jesus, and he's not just kept it to himself. He hasn't gone. I can't believe Jesus accepted me. And then he goes and he just, you know, stays in his room or he goes and follows Jesus but never does anything about it. His first thing he does is he invites Jesus to come and see his friends. Hey, come see this guy who invited me to follow him when no one else would be around me. Come see this Savior. Come see this Messiah. It's literally multiplying like what we talk about. So how do we begin to apply this passage? I told you it's not rocket science. It's very easy to see what's going on. But just seriously think about how do we begin to apply what we see in this text. And, and I think it begins by cultivating gratefulness for what God has done in our lives. Why did Matthew go and tell the other tax collectors and sinners about Jesus? Yes, Jesus was the Messiah, and I'm sure there was something probably charismatic about him, and maybe he heard about the miracles and things like that. But I would imagine probably the number one reason why he went and told his friends is because he was extraordinarily grateful that God would choose someone like him. You know, I think I've grown up in, in, in the South, and I've been with religion, and, and for, I think for 16 to 20 years, I didn't quite understand how much I needed Jesus and how grateful I was that he came for someone like me. I thought I was pretty good. I thought, you know, just that Jesus should accept me. You know, like, I, you know, I didn't realize how deep of a need that I had. But when we realize how deep our sin runs, we realize how deep his love runs. And we can be grateful for that. And so I think it begins by cultivating gratefulness. If you want to do a good word study sometime, look up the word uh, thanks or grateful. Um, Just go type it into like any kind of Bible software. You can even Google it. Um, Just like Google thankful verses in the New Testament. And and almost in every letter in the New Testament, you'll see some some admonition to being thankful. And it's always in a very surprising place. And and it's kind of made me realize recently that one of the defining characteristics of believers, how grateful they are. And it's kind of a condemning thing, too, because in a lot of our churches, I know there were some churches, I'm not, I'm not against the church, so I don't want to seem like that, but and there, were, there were a lot of people that I met in church growing up that were extremely bitter, that were extremely hostile, and you didn't see this kind of gratefulness overflowing into their life. And that's what we want to see. But Jesus has given us hope. He's invited us into his family. And I'm convinced that the more grateful of a church that we become, the more likely we are to share with others. And so as we gather together and as we sing of his praises and as we sing of what he's done for us, may it compel us to go and share when we leave. We want to understand what God has done and we want to encourage each other with it. That's what leads to the multiply part. That's why something like Thursday was so good when we were sharing about what was going on in our lives and about how God was building us up in faith and about how we were taking it to our neighbors and to our community. That's how multiplying is done. We want others to know what we have. If you were to take a circle... And you, were just, and you were to just plot it down right on the outside of this building, or you can take Kids or Kids or wherever your house is, and you put it within two to three miles, we'll say, of this building. Just put a circle down within two to three miles, and you think about all the people within that bubble who don't know the love of God. Think about how many people that would be. Hundreds? Thousands? It would be, it would be high. Like, I, w- I would say, like, Morrisville population is like 20-something thousand. Um, and I know that about half or more probably do not believe in, in what Jesus has done for them. And so we have literally thousands of people within walking distance of this church. And, and, I, and I'm afraid that I've become complacent and comfortable with that. Like, I, I want to say that I care, but my life doesn't demonstrate that. Not, not fully. And I never want to become complacent or comfortable with that. Most of them, the guys, they won't come to a church service The way that we're going to love people, the way that we're going to demonstrate grace to them, the way that they're going to come to know Jesus is by getting into their homes. It's by loving them and serving them with all of our hearts, with all of our minds, with all of our hands and our feet, with all of our resources, with all of our time. It's the day-to-day love. It's the day-to-day witness. It's the day-to-day prayer that's going to begin to change our community. And that's the kind of community change that I want. I don't want people to just come from different churches all over the community and go, okay, the bridge is better. That's not the point. That's what I said That it's happening at the beginning of the service, where there's more people going to more, one church than ever, but there's nothing happening community-wide. I want to see these thousands of people begin to come to know Jesus. And, and some might say it seems like a lot of work. That's actually what someone told me when I, when I told them about disciple-making one time. They said, it seems like a lot of work. It's, it's a good Christian friend that I know. And I, And I would agree, it, it is a lot of work, but, but, but not really. It's just changing how we think about using our time. It's just changing how we think about using our energy. It's not concentrating so much on this one hour of time. Sherry can, Sherry can confess to this, like I, I have a struggle with like, I want to make this one hour of time so compelling for you, and, and you know I want to bring in as many people, and I can get really stressed about this one particular hour of time, but our, our ministry is so much more than that discipleship happens out there it's by practicing small steps of obedience that's why prayer night was so encouraging to me to hear every single person on that call to say here's who i'm praying for here's who i'm thinking about here's who i'm reaching out to here's how you can be praying and to be able to pray with each other in that way that's the heart that we want to cultivate we talked about what does it mean to be devoted to prayer we had one prayer night about community we need to have another and we need to have another and we need to have another uh what I've, what I've hoped to do, and I'm, 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 in, I'm sure I'll fail or stumble at some point, and that's where grace is needed, um, is I'm, I'm hoping to take every one of those prayer requests and pray for one of those each time. So I'm praying for each one of you to be reaching out to your neighbors and community every single day and, and let you know that I've prayed for you and to encourage you in that. But that's what we should all be doing. We're in this together. That's the kind of heart we want to cultivate. So as, as we close up, I just, I just want to encourage you with this. Who is your one? You could have more than one that you're thinking about as far as wanting to know Jesus, but who, just, just think and concentrate on one person or one family. Who's, who's the one person that comes to mind right away that you're like, I want them to know the love of Jesus. And I want you to commit to begin praying for them. On your handout, I put these steps of obedience, just, and I gave you some ideas for this week. Obviously, we want to share the gospel with them, but these things perhaps are the, are the beginning of that relationship and opportunity to share. So that with that one person, Find a specific time each day. Pray for them. So if if there's a time every day, build a habit in. If you eat lunch at a certain time, say that prayer at lunch. You know, if you people can work out every day. You can find five minutes to pray for someone every day, right? So pray for that person every day. Maybe you can share a meal with them. Maybe you can serve them in some way if they have a felt need. Find an opportunity to encourage them. Ask them what they believe about Jesus. I told you last week one of the greatest ways that you can share your faith is just by simply saying, what do you think about Jesus? Listen to people have conversations with them, but who's your one? As we sing in just a few minutes, think about that person, and think about, and ask God, okay, God, how can I begin to reach out to that person in such a way that they might be a step closer toward being a member of your family? Let's pray. Uh, Heavenly Father, um, I'll just be really transparent, and I think I should always be transparent, but I honestly get tired of preaching sermons um, sometimes because I and it, it's not it's not anything that I think we shouldn't preach sermons, but it's it's more of like. We can talk about things all day long, but. God, I want to see, it done. And God, I'm so, grateful for the little steps of faith that I've seen begun to to take fruit, or take root and bear fruit in in my life and in the people in here's life. It's so good to see this group of believers beginning to understand how to make disciples, beginning to take steps of faith toward praying for those who don't know you, toward caring for those who don't know you, toward encouraging each other to to do these things. God, I'm grateful for the kids club that was able to be done in my backyard on Sunday and and the, the kids that came that don't know you. God I'm grateful for the the prayer night. And so God I, I may be tired of preaching, Father, but we should never we should never stop sharing and talking. But God may we be grateful for those little steps of faith that we're taking. God, would you help me see that there's there's fruit taking hold. There's fruit growing. God, I pray that you would encourage each and every person here today that you can empower them to reach their community. You can empower them to reach their neighbor. You can empower them to reach those at at work. You can empower them to reach those at school. That The the spirit that dwells within us is the same spirit that rose Christ from the dead. God, embolden us. God, help us to understand the, the grace that you've given us in such a way that it empowers us to go out. God, thank you for how encouraging these people are to me. And God, I pray that we might encourage each other this week to continue to be your hands and feet, to continue to be your witnesses in Morrisville and Cary and Apex and Raleigh. May your kingdom come, may your will be done. May grace extend to more people. In the name of Jesus, we ask that. Amen.